you'd like to take your Bibles, let's turn to Matthew chapter 18. There are some passages of scripture that are almost easy to preach. They're delightful to preach. It's fun to talk about the miracles of Jesus and see what he did and the power he exercised and to look at passages that talk about the love of God and about creation and those things. There are other passages that are more of a challenge. And uh, that's a, a passage that we have before us today. It's possible that uh, if you have read these words, and certainly when I read them, that you'll, you'll recognize that, uh, that there's a confrontation there, that we're to take certain firm actions in certain circumstances, and those actions can be difficult and be, and be painful. It's really important before I even read the, read the scripture that we understand that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Every word that he gives us as his people is good. It's positive. It's for our good. Not everything feels right. Some, you know, there's, let, let's be honest. Scripture has ice cream. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And the scripture has broccoli. And we need the broccoli more than we need the ice cream sometimes. Father, we thank you for your word, and I ask, Lord, that you would, uh, you would certainly accomplish everything that you intend to accomplish this morning. I ask that we would be attentive and that we would be teachable. Uh, it's, it's possible that some in here, maybe many in here, will, uh, will, will react instinctively when they see these words and when they hear them, and I ask that you dampen that instinct, that our hearts would be open to you, that our minds would be open to your scripture, that we would understand the intention of these words and the purpose of them, and the hope that they represent. We thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> Most of Matthew chapter 18 has to do with sin in the life of a believer. Jesus' disciples came to him at the start of the chapter. They asked who the greatest is in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus calls a child, a little boy, and uh, sets him before them and says, you have to be converted. There has to be a spiritual transformation so that you become like this child. He's not saying that the kingdom of heaven belongs to children. He says sinners have to be converted and become like children in their relationship with God, trusting, loving, adoring, obedient. That's the great one in the kingdom. He goes on to talk about the world and its stumbling blocks. The world is full of stumbling blocks, stumbling blocks being temptations to sin. Those temptations take uh, every possible form. Even good things like worship can become a stumbling block if we worship worship itself. He says it's, it's inevitable that stumbling blocks will come. Temptation is simply inevitable. And there's a certain inevitability to sin even in the life of a Christian. We're simply not going to avoid it while we're in the process of sanctification. He cautions his disciples not to despise any of those little ones who are tempted to stumble or who do stumble. We're not to look at anybody with contempt because they committed a particular sin, because they fell into temptation. No one is to be despised because of their weakness. Rather, 
there, there needs to be help. That first help comes from the Lord Jesus himself. The Son of Man has come to save that which is lost. In verses 12 and 13, he gives a parable about that very thing. A man had a hundred sheep, one went astray, and he went looking for it until he found it. That, that the, the sheep are the people of God. The one gone astray is a believer who has stumbled, and the one who goes to look is Jesus himself. And then he makes it very clear in verse 14, it is not the will of your Father in heaven that any of these little ones shall perish. We, we see this idea repeated throughout the Gospels. In John chapter 6, Jesus says, whoever comes to me I will never cast out. In John 10, he says, no one can take you out of my father's hand. Nobody can take you out of my hand. So there is a security for the people of God. As we, as we get ready to read these words, uh, well, let's just go ahead and read 15 to 20. Jesus says, now, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as the Gentile and the tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. There are three phases to salvation. Uh, We can label them simply justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification is is the first event. It's an instant event. By the Spirit of God, we are born again, we are granted faith, we are forgiven, and the righteousness of Jesus is imputed to us. And it happens all in an instant. Glorification is the end of that process. It's also an instant process where we are made finally exactly like Jesus in his glorified humanity, in his resurrected humanity. In between justification and glorification is this process that we call sanctification. Sanctification is a work of the Spirit with which we cooperate, but it is primarily a work of the Spirit. And it's a work in which the Spirit of God teaches us to love the holiness of God and to hate sin. It's where he teaches us to choose holiness and to reject sin. It is a a lifelong process. At whatever point you came to Christ in your life, sanctification takes the rest of your heartbeats. It will not be done until those are done. It will not be done as long as you are drawing breath. And until sanctification is complete, there are stumbling blocks in the world, and some of those stumbling blocks will sometimes catch us. And we stumble into sin. We fall into sin. The ideal thing, of course, is that having fallen into sin... We are convicted by the Holy Spirit. We are always convicted by the Holy Spirit. He's faithful in that. But the hope is that we would then recognize our sin and that we would confess and that we would repent. And in that that vertical transaction between ourselves and the Lord, we are restored. But the truth is that being sinners, we don't always 
respond immediately to the, the promptings of the Spirit and the conviction of the Spirit. And we need the help of brothers and sisters to escape that sin. And so Jesus gives us a three-part process in which we help one another do that. It begins with a private approach. Verse 15, now if your brother sins, go and show him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Just to clarify a couple of things here, Jesus has Christians in mind. He's not talking about your blood relations. He's not talking about people of your nationality or of your tribe. He's talking about those who are related to you spiritually. If your brother sins. Uh, Second, the issue is actually sin and not disagreement. There are a lot of things that we can get at odds uh, with one another over that don't rise to the level of sin. There's a a situation that takes place later on, years after this, in the city of Philippi in the church there. Two women, Yodia and Syntyche, uh, fall into a conflict with one another. The conflict is serious enough that the whole church knows about it. It's not secret. It's not being tamped under the covers. It's so open that Paul says, I might as well just mention them by name in my letter because everybody knows about it. He urges them to live in harmony with one another, but he never urges them to repent of sin because it hasn't risen to the level of sin. They're at odds with one another. There's a conflict. There's some kind of a painful issue between them, but it doesn't rise to the level of sin, and he doesn't treat it in that way. When he speaks to the the, the leader of the church in Philippi, he doesn't say go to them, confront them. He says help them, help them. So, If your brother sins, we have to make sure that sin is actually involved. We know that sin is actually involved because scripture has defined it for us. Some translations have the word against you. Now, if your brother sins against you, many translations will have a footnote there. It's not in the earliest text, those words. They appear in the 5th century in in, uh, Greek manuscripts. They appear in the 4th century in Latin manuscripts. Uh, It's a variant There are various variants in scripture. I talk about that from from time to time. Many variants don't really affect the meaning and the application of the text, but this I think does. If Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, then he has immediately narrowed everything that follows. And I don't think that that was his intention. The context of this passage, lengthy passage, is a, 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 a little one of Christ who has stumbled into sin, and the disciples, instead of despising that one, are to reach out and help them. That's a a, a shared responsibility that we all have. So I don't think that Jesus used the words against you. And in fact, as we get into the latter part of the the passage in uh, verses 21 through 35, Peter comes to Jesus and says, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? So that's where Jesus deals with that personal offense that personal issue so how are we to respond when a brother or sister stumbles into sin well the first thing is to go privately to take a private approach to handle this discreetly that's because the aim is not to shame anybody it's not to embarrass anybody it's not to expose them the aim is to help them understand their sin so that they can confess it and that they can repent of it Sin is deceptive, and our our hearts are easily deceived. And there's always the possibility that we would do something or say something that escapes our notice, 
that's where a faithful brother or sister helps us. Jesus values our holiness, and he wants us to help one another in that, in that process. If the stumbled believer listens, Jesus says, you've won your brother. He doesn't say you've won the argument. It's not about an argument. It's not about a debate. It's about helping somebody who has fall, fallen. If the stumbled believer listens, that is, if they confess their sin, if they repent, if they acknowledge that they now see that sin as God sees the sin, then the matter's closed. It's over. It doesn't need to go any further. There's no punishment. There's no further action. There's no announcements that are made in the Sunday bulletin. It's done. That's the ideal. That's what we would hope for. Now, unfortunately, Jesus says if he listens, not when he listens. Because the truth is that a quiet, discreet approach might not produce the result that we hope for. Now, what happens then? Well, the disciples and you and I are not to simply shrug our shoulders and say, oh, well, and abandon them to that. We're to take a second approach where we take witnesses. Verse 16, Jesus says, but if he does not listen to you, Take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Now, Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 19.15 here. This is what it says there. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or sin which he has committed. At the mouth of two or three witnesses to the sin, a matter shall be established. The law requires two or three witnesses in order to convict somebody in a court. You can't accuse somebody of a sin and convict them in a court on the basis of a single accusation. And by the way, we practice that in our own legal system today. There may only be one person involved as a victim of a crime, but there has to be evidence of the crime. Those are the other witnesses. There has to be other forensic issues involved. The simple fact that one person accuses another person is not enough to convict them. There has to be more to it. So even our own system of justice recognizes this. The witnesses here in Deuteronomy are not witnesses to the conversation. They're witnesses to the sin. They can stand up before the elders of the people, before the judges of the people. They can swear before God. We saw this take place. We know that this took place. The same holds true in this passage. Now, the way that this has often been presented, I've heard it presented this way many times, is, is this way. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens, you have won your brother. If he does not listen, take two or more with you and then do the same thing. You go, you speak, and then they're observers to that conversation. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says they need to be witnesses to the sin. They need to be witnesses to what happened. That's why he's quoting Deuteronomy 19. He's not simply looking for backup to your approach to them. This is all about confession and repentance and restoration. What if only one person witnessed this sin and they refused to listen? You have to leave it in the hands of God then. You have to leave it in the hands of the Lord Jesus, who is their Lord. You have to leave it to the Holy Spirit to convict them. There's nothing more to be done in that case. 
Jesus addresses that in, in verses 21 to 35. We'll see that in a week or two. Again, the aim is confession. The aim is repentance and restoration. If someone will confess their sin and repent on the basis of a private, discreet conversation, that's awesome. That's best. That's what we hope for. But if it takes another conversation with two or three people speaking, that's fine too. See, in that, that first approach, that discreet approach, you go to that brother or that sister and say, I know that you did this. And by the way, you go with your Bible open so that you can say the Bible describes what you've done as sin. This is not personal opinion. This is not some offense that I have because you colored outside the lines. This is actually something the Bible describes as sin. And I know that you did this. And if they refuse to listen to you, then two or three go. You take one or two with you, so two or three are going. And they say, we know that you committed this sin. We're observers to this sin. And we urge you and we plead with you to repent of it and to confess it. We want to see you get back on your feet and continue your walk with the Lord and continue your journey with the Lord. And if they repent, if they listen, Jesus doesn't say that in the second and third instances, but the principle remains the same. If, they, if he listens, you're done. The two or three can rejoice with that one who has confessed and who, who has repented. It's over. There's no punishment. There's no consequences. There's restitution if they've stolen something, if it's that kind of nature of sin. But they don't owe anything now. They've been made right with the Lord. But what if they still refuse to repent? What happens then? Well, we're not to shrug our shoulders and say, oh, well. We're to take the third step, and that is to tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the two or three witnesses, tell it to the church. Now, a final appeal is made by the church. The church, when Jesus says this, doesn't exist yet. It hasn't been born yet. But he's in the process of preparing his disciples for leadership and what's going to happen in the time to come. Obviously, the, the whole congregation of believers is, is not necessarily going to be witnesses to this sin. Now they are witnesses to the two or three. And they're affirming with the two or three that the sin took place. And the aim of the third step is exactly the same. Confession and repentance and restoration. This step is not the step of excommunication. It's not the step of banishment. This is a group plea that this individual would confess their sin and that they would repent. We're bringing pressure to bear. Certainly, that's true. But doing so in a godly way for their good. Now, the world does this. The world does this. They call it staging an intervention. There are people who uh, are drug addicts or alcoholics. Uh, perhaps they have other issues. Treatment has not worked. Personal pleas have not worked. Perhaps arrests and jail time have not worked. And so uh, an intervention is usually organized by a a professional, as many people who care about that person as you can gather in one place you gather. And sometimes they actually surprise that individual. They don't say, by the way, schedule two hours a week from today because we're going to do an intervention. They simply bring him to a place, and, and it's like a surprise party. 
And each one of those people make a plea. They explain, I know what your sin is. I know what your issue is. They talk about how it has affected the relationship and how, how I see it taking, uh, impacting your life and being harmful to your life. And I plead with you to do something about it. And they go around, whether it's 10 or 12 or 30 or 50 people. Sometimes interventions work. Sometimes the, 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 the very fact that the support system that this person thinks they have, they all know, is enough to shock them. Sometimes it doesn't work. And sometimes they simply continue on. It tends to be a last resort. It's also true that sometimes intervention uh, will break a relationship permanently because that person feels betrayed. But the people who care about them are so concerned about their addiction, so concerned about their behavior, that they're willing to risk everything in order to make a final appeal that gets through to that individual. Well, the same holds true for the church. A person who has been faced with their sin privately and faced with their sin with two or three witnesses and has steadfastly refused to admit it, refused to confess, refused to repent, is in a bad place. The church is to take the approach of speaking to them urgently in a heartfelt way and pleading with them to repent. And the hope is that they will, that they'll repent and that they'll confess. And if they do, the matter is closed. They all rejoice. They all rejoice. The whole church experiences a, a humbling moment because it's a humbling thing to confront somebody over their sin. They all experience the, the joy of the Lord as they see someone restored. But if he refuses to listen to the church, Jesus says, there's one final act that must be taken. Let him be to you as the Gentile and the tax collector. That is, if he refuses to listen even to the church, you have to change your view of this person. You've considered them to be a little child of Christ who stumbled into sin who were stumbled by the stumbling blocks of the world. But they've proven over time by the hardness of their heart and by their refusal to repent that they're not an innocent victim. They like their sin. They're trying to defend it and hang on to it. And so you can no longer consider them to be a fellow believer. You have to look at them as a Gentile or a tax collector. The New Testament actually contains a, a, number, of a number of passages that speak of this uh, one is first corinthians chapter five paul is, has written there in the earlier part of the chapter about a man who was immorally involved with his stepmother and he has given them instructions to to because the man refuses to repent to remove him from fellowship paul actually uses the language hand him over to satan for the destruction of his body that his spirit may be saved and then he says, beginning in, in verse 9, I wrote, in you, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not at all mean with the sexually immoral people of the world or with the greedy and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you'd have to go out of the world. That's who the world is made up of. But now I am writing to you not to associate with any so-called brother 
if he is a sexually immoral person or greedy or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such one, the so-called brother. Paul says you have to begin with the assumption, or you have to conclude rather, that this is a so-called brother, not an actual believer, but a pretender. Are they actually a pretender? Or are they a genuine Christian who has gotten caught and because of immaturity and pride won't admit it? We don't know. It's not for us to know. Jesus knows. And he's given us the diagnosis. And he's given us the plan of treatment. So nothing in scripture says that we then view this person with hatred or with disgust. Rather, we treat them as a Gentile, as a tax collector. We now go back to the gospel and we preach Christ to them. And we urge them to believe, and we urge them to repent, and we urge them to be saved. Are they saved? Only God knows. If we, God willing, we would never have to do this, but if the time comes where we have to remove somebody from fellowship, we're not removing them from heaven if they have a place there. We're not ripping them out of the hand of God. We're following Jesus' instructions. If they belong to him, he is not going to abandon them. He says in John 6, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. He says in John 10, nobody can take you out of my hand and nobody can take you out of my father's hand. So there is security there, even in our sin and even in our weakness. But there's a strong likelihood that somebody who reaches this point is actually unsaved and is only pretended to be a Christian. Maybe they like the the gathering on Sunday morning. Maybe they like the spiritual nature of it. Maybe they like the music. Maybe they like the friendliness of the church. Maybe they they see a, a place of hope and of peace. It's a group of people who are not in constant competition with one another, but who tend to like each other and tend to love each other. And all of those things are attractive, but they're not actually regenerate. They can't stay in the fellowship if they won't repent. The church can't ignore their sin. But we need to continue to hope and pray for their salvation. We need to remember this. We need to remember that unrepentant sinners are not innocent victims. Because we are sinners ourselves, this whole idea of confronting sin is is something that's very discomforting to us. We, We don't want to do this in part because we don't want to do it, and partly because we don't want it to happen to us. But see, if somebody discovered immorality in your life and they came to you and said, you're involved in immorality, you're involved in something that's unwholesome and ungodly, and the, 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 the Bible says that, and I, I know your faith, I know that you love the Lord. I believe that with all my heart. And so I appeal to you to turn away from that sin and to confess it, to be made whole and to be cleansed. There is no person on the face of the earth as unhappy as a Christian who is living in rebellion. God will not allow us to be happy in our rebellion. That's one of the reasons that these appeals are given to us, I think. A believer who stumbles into a sin and says, I'm just going to live here for a while. They have no joy. They have no peace. They have no sense of belonging. They might even start worrying about whether or not they're actually saved. 
because of all that painful struggle. But the person who is pretending to be a Christian in a church and then it's discovered that they're involved in immorality, they don't care. Their sin doesn't bother them. It doesn't hurt them. They don't want to get caught for the most part, but they don't care about the sin itself. That's a bad sign. So if John says in 1 John 3, little children, let no one deceive you. The one who does righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does sin is of the devil because the devil sins from the beginning. The son of God was manifested for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. What does that mean? That means that as you and I grow in Christ, Jesus destroys the works of the devil in our lives. He breaks the chains of sin. He breaks the enjoyment of sin and the entitlement or the, the, the excitement of sin for us. It becomes sickening to us. It becomes revolting to us. That doesn't mean that we don't stumble, but we recognize our stumbles and we hate our stumbles. We want to think the best of people, I know, but we must obey our Lord all of this is fearsome to think about. It truly is. None of this is fun. None of this is anything we, we want to do. Many of us would think, who are we to make those kinds of judgments? And the truth is, we don't make the judgments. Jesus has given us instructions as to what to do when circumstances turn out a certain way. When you see a brother or sister and they've involved themselves in immorality and you've gone to them privately and they won't repent, you've gone back with two or three others who know about their sin and they still won't repent and you bring it to the church and the church confronts them and urges repentance from them and they still refuse, we don't have to make it up. We don't have to say, well, I've got no idea what to do now. We've been given clear instructions on what to do. Well, sometimes. But eventually, the, eventually the accident, if, yeah, yeah. If, if you've, uh, well, that, that, that's a good question. Uh, years ago, gosh, what was it, 14 years ago, my mom and dad moved out from California to here. And they, they flew out, and my wife and I flew out and drove their car back. Well, the speed limit changes from Arizona to New Mexico. It was 85 in Arizona, across the border, and it's 75 in New Mexico. So I get off the freeway immediately. I don't see the new speed limit sign. I get off for a rest stop, a little comfort break. And then I get back on the freeway, and I'm thinking 85, which means, of course, 95. And I bury my foot in the accelerator, and whoop, I get lit up. Purely accidental, pure mistake. And you could say that a brother pulled me over and he pointed out my sin to me and he gave me a written reminder of it so that I wouldn't forget. And then I did the speed limit. That's what proved it was accidental. That's what proved it was a stumble. If after I took back on, I had kept going at 95, now the idea that I'm innocent is completely gone. So we've, we've got to have some confidence in the sovereignty of God in all of this. And that's what Jesus gets to in verses 18 to 20. 
Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Now, shall have been bound is not good English. We don't talk about, we don't use that. But it's a great translation. It's exactly what Jesus intended to say. You remember the words from the Lord's Prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what's happening here. These decisions don't begin on earth, they begin in heaven. And so as we go through the process of a private approach and then an approach with witnesses and if necessary going to the church, each one of those steps has already been predetermined by the Lord. Before we saw this person commit this sin, the Lord knew it. And he's designed this for their restoration if they know him and for their exposure if they don't know him. Jesus is not waiting to see what we do in order to decide what he'll do. By the time we go to somebody and say, this is your sin, I urge you to repent and believe the gospel, that message has already come to them from the Spirit of God. When we go back, it's repeating that message. When the church repeats it, it's repeating that message. 2 Timothy 2 says that repentance is a gift from God. It's not something we can produce on our own. I can only think of two reasons that the Lord would not grant someone repentance. The first is that they're committed to eternal judgment. And he is not going to grant them repentance. He's going to leave them in their sin and give them the judgment that they deserve. And the second that is that they are a sinning believer and he's going to break their pride. He's going to break their self-sufficiency by letting them wallow in this sin. He's not afraid of our sin. He uses it surgically. And so if we have followed Jesus' instructions, if someone refuses to repent, if it becomes necessary to remove them from the fellowship, we're simply carrying out on earth what the Lord has already decreed in heaven. It shall have been done in heaven already. We're not binding the Lord to an action. We're following his lead. And if we follow Jesus' instructions and someone does repent at some point during this process, it's because he has granted them repentance in heaven. And again, we are simply following his lead. The authority of the church and the authority of each and every Christian is always and only the right to carry out the instructions of our Lord. We have no authority to make it up. We have no authority to say, well, this situation has gone on. We know that Billy Bob has been doing this or that. What are we going to do? Let's build a process. We don't have the authority to do that. We only have the authority to follow the instructions that Jesus has given. And we have the confidence of knowing that when we follow his instructions, we please him. And that he is in control of the outcome. We're going to spend more time in Matthew 18, 18 to 20 next week. There's a lot there. Uh, for now, let's, let's bring this home. Um, God willing, it, would, it will never be necessary for us to follow this process. God willing, if it becomes necessary, we will follow this process. We must have both on our minds. The, the primary reason that somebody would say, I don't want to do this, 
is because of a, a mistaken definition of love. We were uh, part of a church previously, and there was an individual who had some issues that needed to be faced, and a group of people had gotten together to talk about this. And we talked at length. We talked for several hours. And it was agreed unanimously by the entire group there needs to be a confronting conversation with this individual. There were some people present who were very close to them. And so it was natural to turn to them and say, you've got this close, close relationship with this person. Would you speak to them? And without hesitation, all of them said, no, that's my friend. Which being interpreted means I value my friendship more than I value that person. I value my enjoyment of them more than their own soul. That's not a good thing to say. Let me offer three quick observations about this. Again, first of all, actual sin has to be involved. This is not up to our own interpretation. We've got to come to somebody with an open Bible in our hand and say, here's what the word of God says. We don't hold people accountable to our feelings or our opinions. Uh, second, the quicker we are to obey the Lord, the, the better off it is. We don't want to be hasty, but we must be quick. The quicker we are, the less time that sermon has to or that, that sin has to solidify in their lives. And finally, the aim is always repentance and restoration. Even if we have to remove somebody from the fellowship, Jesus will not abandon them. In 2 Corinthians, the same man that they removed returns. And then the church has to be counseled on how to receive him back. Removing a sinning Christian from the fellowship, while it's a drastic action, is part of Jesus' remedy. It's, it's part of how he restores a stumbled believer. Father, we thank you for your love for us, your kindness to us. Thank you for the clarity of your word. Uh, we would pray, Lord, that we would never have to carry out these instructions. Uh, we would also pray that if it becomes necessary to carry out these instructions, we will faithfully, with humility, and with kindness. We thank you that your love for us is secure, and that your love for us is so certain that you require us to love one another as you would love us with gentleness and with regard, with patience, and yet with a true regard for the holiness of God. And we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We lift up those who are not with us this week and uh, ask that you would bless them, remind them of your presence and your love. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.